Achromatic Telescopes in episode 376 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. How are you doing this morning, Shane? Oh, I'm okay. How are you? I am very tired. It's it's Sunday morning. I get up on Friday morning at 4 a.m. I did a two-hour session and observed Friday evening and observed uh, morning session Saturday morning. I did a session Saturday night and did a session this morning. So I am ready for a full moon here, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, I did my fourth, I think my fourth session or fifth session in the last six days last night. Uh, now I'm, I'm the evening guy, so I can still get a good sleep, but it's just been great weather here. Um, like warm, clear, mm. uh, we really couldn't ask for much more for astronomy. The seeing hasn't been amazing these nights, but, um, you know, other, other than that, I'd say it, it's pretty much been perfect. Yeah. It's sort of like the, the best fall weather we can imagine here, like kind of in a way we shouldn't have good seeing, um, but I think it was Friday night. It was, that was just absolutely as, but as clear as it can get. Like you, you would walk out and even before you were dark adapted out here, like at my dark site, uh, you could see the Milky Way mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. right away. And then, uh, same thing in the morning when I got up in the morning on Saturday morning, the, the winter Milky Way on Saturday morning from here was about as good as the summer Milky Way looks naked to the uh, to the naked eye uh, on an average uh, summer evening. So mm -hmm. just uh, just spectacular. So yeah, lots and lots of observing. Then yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little in the next episode because this one I think we have a fairly full episode. But uh, before we get uh, started, we have a uh, Patreon supporter. Maybe we'll thank the Patreon supporter first, Shane. I did write him, but uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So thank you, Ken. Ken is our newest Patreon supporter. And uh, as always, we like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, it helps keep the show going. And as a reminder, we are doing a draw again this year. Uh, so Chris has acquired some RASC observing calendars that we will give away sometime in December. Uh, and those that will be entered are any of our Patreon subscribers. So, um, there's still an opportunity if anybody wants to support the show that way to get in and, and you'll still be entered for the draw. Yeah, that's uh, excellent. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, I am the RASC observers calendar editor. And, uh, as such, I get a handful of, uh, spare copies to use for my own evil ways. And, uh, yeah, they end up sending me a couple extra ones. So. Yeah, and then I'll just donate another one and we'll be off to the races, uh, giving those out to people. And what else is I going to say? Eh, well, yeah, we do the objects to observe or the observer's calendar. Now we're calling it every month. And most of that is coming from this. It's part of my deal for doing the calendar. That's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. And then we have all that stuff already mapped out. And it's sort of one show a month. We don't have to worry too much about Shane. Mm -hmm. Good way to put it. So today we're going to talk about uh, achromatic telescopes. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of excited for this. You know, I think uh, when we'll get into an email that Wade sent us, but I, I think that achromats maybe have a little bit of a, maybe an unfair reputation out there that um, I think you and I are probably somewhat aligned in terms of, we, yeah. we like we enjoy these telescopes and there's certainly... We 
some really good qualities here or, or instruments out there in the acromatic world. And we'll, we'll dive into it in this episode. I, I was gonna, I had different titles for the show. I was mm-hmm. gonna, I, I was this. gonna call it some, cause, okay. So first of all, for those that are just listening, in case you don't know, um, one of the, um, most frequently held comments about an acromat is that they have secondary color. And this, this is true, Shane, they, mm-hmm. they have some spurious secondary color. It, it is an aberration. It's called chromatic aberration. Um, and what, how that shows itself is that on a bright target, like a really bright star, like Sirius or, or an object like the moon or a really bright planet like Venus, uh, you will see, um, various colors uh usually they're what purple might be a green line might be a red line um, Ye- yellow is what jumps out in my eye kind of uh i don't know maybe, maybe it's just the way my eyes work but i i sometimes see like a yellowish fringe on bright objects well that's that's a good point and maybe we should put that down because i don't notice it that way i mm. i notice it um differently and we're all constructed a little bit different and i think uh in some ways that's why the acromat has sort of varied reputations amongst uh, various observers because there's sort of like no other telescope that kind of appears that way if a telescope doesn't have these uh secondary colors um well then you and i look through and we basically see things more or less in this sort of uh, neutral way but with the uh, i think with with those secondary colors they yield themselves quite differently for me I see more like blue, red, like it's even mm. when I was looking through my refractor last evening at uh, Jupiter, uh, I could kind of see in my, even though it's an apochromat, it's fast, uh, Pentax lenses, good lenses and everything, but I can see sort of one side has a little thin red line, one side has a little thin blue line. And one of the reasons why I bought my Takahashi 100 millimeter is, you know, it is uh, sort of perfectly color corrected for looking at the planets but but anyway we'll we'll get into that so um that's secondary color but (laughs) firstly i was gonna call the show somewhere over the rainbow um and then i i was i was having this picture of playing the the music or that that was the one with dorothy in it uh yeah and then um uh, purple haze i thought maybe we would play purple haze little hendrix yeah yeah, one of the great, in my opinion, one of the greatest songs ever. But I thought for sure if we put those in, then we can't put it on YouTube. So, Shane, there are two main, there's all kinds of different kinds of refractors. Mm-hmm. You can look at, there's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of folded ones and fancy different ones, uh, you know, triplets, quads, and blah, blah, blah. But sort of, for our amateur community, it boils down to uh, essentially achromatic telescopes and apochromatic telescopes, uh, commonly referred to as acros or or apos. So maybe we'll just start with uh, what's the difference between these two telescopes sort of in a basic way, Shane? Well, I think maybe at a high level, it, it's really just talking to the wavelengths of light that they correct for. Um uh, like an achromatic, uh, refractor, I think corrects for, is it one wavelength or two wavelengths? I can't remember. Yeah. I think it's two. Yeah. Yeah. Typically and or something like that, something like that. And apochromat is like three or, or like the whole RGB spectrum. It tries yeah. to correct for Yeah. now that's kind of it. Like that's the main difference at a high level. Um, and then you can kind of get into like 
you know, the amount of objectives, like some apocrymats have two objectives, some have three, some even have four. Um, but at the end of the day, it's kind of almost like going back to like an orthoscopic eyepiece. Ortho does not designate a design of an eyepiece. It means like aberration free, essentially. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, similar to an apochromatic telescope, it, it can come in many different designs, but the end result is, is that it's basically corrected for all colors meaning you should not see any false color on an object, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of brightness. And this is where it sort of gets a, into a little murkiness, I think, within the definitions, because again, yeah. you've got acros, which are known to have color, and then apos, which you assume do not. But um, even some like two element apochromatic uh, refractors, as you mentioned earlier, like yeah. your 125 will still show color sometimes. Yeah. So that's where, mm -hmm. you know, sticklers get a little hung up, I think, on the definition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's sort of like the majority, like in my mind, like you can still call it apochromatic as long as sort of like that majority of the color is, is corrected. But mm -hmm. on the five inch, it's just, it's just the nature of it. Sort of like in a way, like the elements are apochromatic, but simply because it's, it's so fast. And then as well, uh, my telescope anyhow is is designed primarily to be used as an astrograph and sort of like in a way, technically speaking, you're supposed to drop another set of lens elements um, in in the focuser end of it. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, kind of how that one's set up. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting point, too, because sometimes telescopes like Apple's in particular that are made for photography do assume that there's something else in that light path that corrects mm -hmm. for some of the color. Yeah. And sort of put another way, if you had a uh, sort of a, and, and typically what we're talking about with apocromats is they have uh, some sort of specialized or somewhat or sometimes very exotic glass that is used. So for example, um this 120 I'm, I'm sitting here i'm looking at it it's still set up because i didn't tear it down um when i finished a few hours ago it seems um it's it's got the fpl 53 glass uh some of them use a fluorite glass some of them use it's like whatever it is k100 or something like that um, fc fcd 100 i think fcd 100 yeah yeah there's a all, bunch out there all kinds of different um wild and crazy glasses are out there but then with the acromats typically what they're doing is just using regular uh like crown flint glasses and then there's another type of glass that they use but they're relatively common glasses i think uh you know i, I could be wrong but i feel like uh, when i was reading I, I did read i have the uh, uh roger sergioli book on uh telescopes eyepieces and astrographs that came out uh, seven or eight years ago with uh, Richard Berry and, and a couple other people. Um, I, I read through that in preparation for this. And I believe uh, in that they were just talking about how it is just very common glass that's used in those um, basic Fraunhofer uh, acromats. Um, and Fraunhofer was the person who, who created this design, I think like in late 1600s, or, no, it'd be 1700s. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. And, and, and I, 
And I think that's one of the more common acromat designs still used. And uh, just to muddy the waters even more, there are some acromats that have ED glass. Um, like there's that four inch F11 that you and I were looking at mm. a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the elements, maybe both, I can't remember, but for sure one element is ED glass. And, uh, you know, I think it's still revered as like a outstanding telescope, particularly for planets, because it's a longer focal length, which we'll get into as one of the characteristics that usually an acromat requires for color correction. But um, uh, this particular telescope that's F11 with an ED objective uh, apparently just provides stunning views. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the advantages, uh, which again, we'll probably get into here with an acromat is they're a fraction of the cost of uh, a similar sized apochromat. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, there's always nuances and things that can influence that, but for the most part, acromats are very inexpensive and can offer outstanding performance. Yeah, exactly. So maybe before we go to, to, um, yeah, maybe we'll just talk about Wade. Uh, so he sent us this mm, email yeah. from, from Australia um, it's always fun hearing from Wade because, um, well, he lives in Australia and that's, uh, sort of like a dream place for many of us to go and observe. And he sends us some observing reports and, um, sometimes other things, which is really cool. And, uh, I can never pronounce the names of the places that he goes observing, but, uh, sounds like some of them are pretty decent, like Bortle one type skies. And he also has one of the AZ EQ six mounts. And when I was uh, going through the process of figuring out what mount I would get, um, for my observatory, still not done. Um, he uh, he was one of the people I was talking with him, Mark Ridici, and uh, oh, is it oh, Jason over in Vancouver? Anyway, I was talking to three people. Anyway, Wade was one of them, and he owns a couple fast refractors. He owns so this is sort of key to his email. So uh, for those that are familiar with telescopes and uh, kind of want to get the gist maybe of our response. Uh, Wade owns a couple of refractors. He's got an ST120 F5. So it's a pretty fast, um, basically just under five inch acromat, uh, which is at F5. And then he has a 90 millimeter F5.5. So I think that's where he's, he's coming from with this Shane. And um, we should say that you and I both talked to Wayne before doing this show on this topic. Wait, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we sure did. And well, the reason wait, wait, supplied a flashlight. He built a flashlight for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He built a flashlight for you. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that people knew, like we, we talked to Wade, we had some emails, both of us, uh, sort of together, but sort of independently writing. Um, back and forth with Wade because, well, one, we we go back and forth on a variety of different topics with many of our listeners, and Wade is one of them. And and two, um, Wade poses a few things, and you and I might kind of, I want to say disagree, but we might have different viewpoints and different experiences. And I was thinking, based on what Wade has, I don't know what other instruments Wade has looked through. He could have all kinds of different experiences, different scopes. But I was thinking that he's got those two scopes. And that's probably very formative in his ideas around acromats. And based on my experience, and we'll get into that, I think that uh, that, that can influence how we view acromats and how many people view acromats. So 
I'm going to leave it at that, Shane. Do you want to, it's a very, it's a relatively short email. Do you want to give it uh, a read or do you want me to read it? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Okay. Uh, Wade says, hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, the topic I had in mind was how to work around the shortcomings of an acromat. Uh, you probably know more than me, but a few examples would be low power. Uh, chromatic aberration is less of a problem the lower the power and more of a problem with higher power. Uh, then he goes on to say, use nebula and narrowband filters. Uh, you don't need to focus all the wavelengths of light together if you're only looking at one or two wavelengths. Uh, the uh, Bader Herschel wedge comes with a seven uh, nanometer, I think, mm -hmm. uh, continuum continuum filter. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you use it with an apochromat or an acromat with that filter in place. Uh, using violet killing filters, example, fringe killer or the contrast booster. Uh, another thing he wrote here is stop down the aperture for basic acromat is it is ideal to have a focal ratio, at least three times the aperture in inches and five times is even better. Uh, this is called the chromatic ratio. It's the focal ratio divided by the aperture in inches. For example, a four inch F5, uh, so that's 500 millimeter focal length, would have a chromatic ratio of only 1.25. Whereas if you stepped it down to two inches, so 50 millimeters, uh, it would now have a focal ratio of F10 uh, and a chromatic ratio of five. Uh, I do this with all of my acromats and it works beautifully on the moon and during the day on terrestrial targets. Uh, I believe you have covered some of this before, but not all in one show. Clear skies from Wade. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Wade. It's always great chatting with you. Um, and then uh, again, thanks so much for writing in and, and sending this, this email. Um, well, we might think about those never ending debates and, you know, we're on the forums, uh, not as much as we used to be. We used to be on the forums quite a bit. And there was always like the reflect, re refractor, reflector, or Schmidt-Cassegrain or Dobsonian uh, debate sort of, you know, which, which telescope to get. But I got to say, the most heated debates in the forums are those surrounding acromats versus any other instrument. Like so many times you'll see somebody say, should I get this 120 millimeter F8? And somebody will really be quick to come in and say, don't get that telescope. It's basically going to give you all the secondary color and it's not going to be very good. And you should go and get any other telescope. You can just sort of fill in the blanks there. You should get a six inch Cassegrain or you should get an eight inch Dobsonian or you should get a 70 millimeter ED. Um, but yeah, it's pretty wild that, uh, that you'll see those kind of responses. I don't know. Have you read many of those as well? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And, um, you know, I'm, I have many hobbies outside of astronomy that I'm passionate about and, and certainly invest time in. And I got to say, you know, maybe, maybe it's the, the bias of just what's in the, the cloudy night forums sometimes, but it seems like more so in astronomy than any of my other hobbies, there's a lot of opinions offered from, uh, uh, positions of little to no experience. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it drives me insane. Yeah. And I think, I think some acromats maybe have a bad rep, uh, because, you know, one of, one of the, you know, I think sort of standing almost rules of astronomy, if, if you want to really get into this hobby, you know, we always say, don't buy the department store telescope, you know, go to a telescope store to get a yeah. better quality instrument. Yeah. And, you know, just to break that down a little bit, one of the things that goes on in department store telescopes is it's often, you know, 
minimal cost, maximum profit. So you're getting an instrument that has many shortcomings. Usually, almost always, uh, the tripod and mount are the weakest points. Yeah. Sometimes, too, the telescopes are just mass produced with very little quality control. And you may end up with some duds uh, in terms of like lenses. Like I've, I've read reports of like a brand new telescope not working very well. And one of the elements was reversed uh, yep. like right from factory. So you switch yep. the element around and all of a sudden the telescope is a, yeah. a gem. So, exactly. so I think, you know, based on some of that, acromats in general just get whitewashed with this bad reputation. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to over or, or ignore some of the shortcomings because there certainly are shortcomings with the yep. design. But in general, uh, I would just encourage everybody, like if you're thinking about buying a telescope for the first time, or maybe uh, adding one to the collection, I wouldn't completely disregard acromats because they're they're a very, very capable instrument. I don't know if we'll get into it a ton on this episode, but the next one, when we talk about the observing that we've done in the last week, uh, I've been exclusively observing with an acromat. And one of those garbage trash Zeiss scopes, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a telemeter and, you know, it's a very good acromat for sure. But, you know, spoiler alert, some of the, um, so I've been observing double stars exclusively and from the RASC list that our uh, late good friend, uh, Blake Nancaro curated, and he lists aperture, like recommended aperture for these systems. And I don't pay any attention to that, but there was a couple of doubles that I struggled with, but eventually split using higher mm. power or extended mm -hmm. observing. And after the fact, I looked at his recommended aperture and he was recommending on a couple of these systems, 150 millimeters. So six wow. inches of aperture. And I was using a 63 millimeter acromat to do it. Yeah. So it just goes to show that they are capable instruments. Yeah. Um, just just want to say, I really like how uh, Wade put his, or sorry, am I getting it wrong? Yeah, it's Wayne. Uh, Wade, sorry. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm a little bit tired. Um, I, like, I like how he put his email. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the fact that 20 years ago, uh, there were, you know, basically, if you were getting into astronomy and you wanted a refractor, you were probably just looking at acromats. I remember before I, I knew the, the pricing in that, I went and uh, I had a friend who worked at a camera store and and I said to him, because I had just gotten the Backyard Astronomer's Guide and, you know, we were all sort of working our first uh, jobs in, in college and I saved up... Uh, uh, you know, a few hundred bucks or something like that, starting to save towards a telescope. And uh, he, he said to me one day when we were picking him up at work or something, and he said, oh, well, like we, we actually can get telescopes in here. And I said, oh, that's, that's cool. He said, well, like, what do you want? Maybe we can, we can get one in. And I don't know if he, he could have gotten a store discount or something. And I said, well, I'd really like to get a four inch apocromat. Oh, all right. Well, don't see those in the catalog. I'll inquire. So kind of sent some feelers out through the organization. And I remember it came back and he was like, you, you can't afford that telescope. It was like <laughs> going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, so I knew that if, if I was getting a refractor, it was going to have to be an acromat because you could, you could get into a decent acromat for, uh, you know, for, for maybe a few hundred bucks, like I was saying. Uh, but those were entry level telescopes. And like you were saying, most brands, um, 
that carry them, you know, uh, outside of the department stores, that is, but the the reputable brands are like Skywatcher, Orion, Celestron, and they still carry Acromats in the, you know, 60 millimeter, maybe even smaller to about uh, six inch uh, Acromats in size. Uh, just to give people a little bit of the lay of the land, popular models include like 70 and 90 millimeter uh, versions with F ratios around F10 and Skywatch and Orion, they they carry these lines of uh, 100, 120 in F5, and the odd time they'll have these uh, six inches uh, or 150 millimeter in F5. And then most of the brands all seem to carry, um, and this is like almost ubiquitous, the 80 millimeter F5, often lovingly referred to as the ST80, which was the original Orion brand at one. And then many of the brands carry 120 millimeter F 8.3 and six inch F eight instruments. And that's a little bit of the lay of the land. Have I missed any, any of those with sort of the common acromats that are out there, Shane? Uh, no, I don't. Well, I'm just taking a quick look. Yeah. That's pretty common. I think. Um, yeah. 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 I think that's a fairly, uh, good list, you know, if you're browsing a, a telescope website. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you go to a star party, you're likely to see one, or if it's a big enough star party, you'll, you'll probably see examples of all of those telescopes set up on the field, uh, at some point in time. Now in, in the present day, we, uh, we have much more affordable apocromat. So whereas, like I said, the, the least expensive apocromat that the local camera store could get in, um, you know, when I was getting into this in the 90s, was going to be into the thousands of dollars. Now, I don't know if you can even buy a telescope at a camera store anymore, but I, I suppose you can in a few places. Dave Chapman wrote in and correct me. But, um, you know, you can get into a small like 70 millimeter or 60 millimeter apocromat for uh maybe uh, $250, $300 uh, American. So things have changed uh, significantly. And then, um, you know, you can work your way up there sort of for all all budgets. Now, Shane, I'm not sure what your background is on uh, on acromats. And I actually think you've got a little bit more in varied experience than I do, but maybe I'll just give my sort of two shakes first. Sure. But uh, my first scope was an 8-inch F6 used that for a few years, moved back to the city to go back to university or go back to school and uh, didn't have a telescope, wasn't really on my radar. But after I was there for like a few weeks, you know, I was like, I really want to have a telescope here, but there's, you know, I go home on a weekend, I look at my eight inch daub and think about my, you know, uh, 308 square foot bachelor apartment and go, mm, <laughs> you know, this isn't going to work too well. How do you, how do you deal with this? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, the summer before I had won a $100 gift certificate, which I discovered was just enough to buy an Antares 80 millimeter F5, basically the Canadian version of one of these ST80s. So uh, I, I sent him my gift certificate and back came the Antares and um, all its glory. And uh, I just, you know, put it on a rickety tripod that I happen to have because that was, I had no budget for this. All I had was that gift certificate and that was it. Whatever, I had other eyepieces that I had saved up. I think I had three eyepieces that I had saved up and um, was good to go with uh, since I had the uh, Dobsonian already. Um, but, you know, it came with a 45 angle 
diagonal. And yeah, so I had to use that for a year or two before I could afford to buy a proper 90 degree. But, you know, it was great. I just, I really fell in love with the wide fields and I would just sort of hike with it and go to a park because I didn't have a car at the time and didn't really have any friends that even had cars because back in those days, you know, nobody did. Um, you're going to school. And then, uh, you know, it was great. I could get up to the rooftop of the apartment building I was at, look at Jupiter, take it down to the park, look at M13 or, or some other targets and just really fell in love with uh, those wide field targets. And, um, you know, now you can you can buy similar setups in, uh, you know, in, in a parachromatic format. But uh, one of my favorite telescopes, and I, I should add, I don't think I told you this, but I, I was recently using um, this weekend or the past several days, the 50 millimeter F5 that you made up for me, Shane. And, mm. and that's uh, a little acromat as well, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And it performs quite well. Oh, um, it's surprisingly well corrected, actually. I'm not saying it's perfect to the edge, but it, it really does surprise me every time I use it. I eventually sold my 80 millimeter F5. I kind of, re- I really wish I had held on to that. I was moving like when we moved um, to Ontario, eventually I knew we'd be moving somewhere else, moved out here. It was just going to be too much to be dragging that along, but uh, I, I should have kept it. I sold it to um person who works on the observer's calendar with me. So I work quite a bit with him now. The telescope is still getting lots of use. So that's good. But during the pandemic, I don't know. I don't know why, Shane, the the uh, <laughs> the pandemic uh, craziness or, or what, but I ended up buying a couple of the uh, the newer 80 millimeter F5 acromats, uh, each of them for less than $100 new. And uh, I kind of got them working as as best I could, made some modifications to them. It's just sort of a fun little project to do. And um, I have one out here, you know, sometimes still do some observing with that. So I've got uh, currently my stable, despite having uh, a few apochromatic telescopes, I, I still use uh, a couple acromats, in particular, the, the 50 millimeter F5. So where you've got more varied and interesting experience with acromats than I do. So I'm, I'm interested to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, um, most of, well, I think all of my experience actually with acromats is through my, I guess, love or interest of some of the, uh, vintage telescopes. Um, it started, well, I've, I've had a, f- a number of different Tascos, uh, probably the one, uh, or, or two of them really stand out. There is the, um, 7TE5, which is a 60 millimeter, I'm trying to think here, I think 1000 millimeter focal length um, acromat. Uh, it was the, the optics were made by Royal Astro Optic, and uh, it was a great, great performing telescope. Um, I remember looking at Mars during opposition, mm, I think two oppositions ago. And just astonished actually with the detail that I could see through a, just a 60 millimeter telescope, uh, but also just the, the beautiful image that this acromat was throwing up. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I had that for a couple of years and I ended up selling it because two other vintage telescopes in around that 60 millimeter range entered my collection. One is that Zeiss uh, telemeter that we talked about earlier. It's a uh, 63 millimeter, uh, 840 millimeter focal length acromat. That is uh, quite wonderful to use. Um, it's quite heavy, actually. Like that telescope was made to go into schools all across Germany. Um, and, you know, knowing how kids sometimes treat 
things. It, you know, Zeiss decided they better make this a beefy telescope so that it could handle, you know, being knocked over or, or stored roughly. And uh, the tube itself is quite heavy. It's quite a, a thick walled uh, metal. Um, but some of the neat things about the Zeiss telemeter is it has um, like, uh, I guess, peep sights. So there's a, like a circle sight kind of at the front of the telescope where the objective is. And then another one towards the back where the diagonal goes. And you just line these two things up to find your star or planet that you want to observe. And it works quite well. It never needs alignment. Um, the other unique thing about the telemeter is that typically uh, on a telescope, the focuser moves the diagonal back and forth. While on the telemeter, the di like the diagonal stays static for focusing. It never moves. The lens cell within the optical tube moves back and forth, and um, it's kind of neat. So you you never really have to adjust your observing position to accommodate focus, um, and you know, because it operates like that, the tube itself sort of becomes the dew shield. But anyway, the Zeiss telemeter is, uh, is one. And then one that I don't really use too much. It's, it's an acromat, but it's advertised as semi-apochromatic and it's an old Takahashi TS 65. So it's a 65 millimeter, uh, triplet, which is again, achromatic still. Um, and I think the focal length on that is, it's either a thousand millimeters or maybe 1100 millimeters. I can't quite remember. So I, it's another long, uh, focal length telescope. Um, and the little bit that I've used, it is just fantastic. It, it is such a great performing telescope. Um, I, I kind of think I should sell either the Zeiss or the, the Takahashi. Um, in fact, I tried to sell the Takahashi a little while ago, but, um, I wanted it to be a local buyer because I really didn't want to ship it. It's, it's quite, it's the whole package, you know, it's this big wood box. You get the mount, the tripod, eyepieces, counterweights, uh, solar observing projection thing. It, it, it it's quite a bit and shipping that uh, I think would be a bit of a nightmare. Um, so anyway, yeah, those heard, are, I've heard that shipping telescopes can be a lot of money these days. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> depending how you do it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and then my last one, uh, which I've used a, a little bit, but I, you know, I read, I would like to get into it a lot more. It's another Tasco and this is the, uh, uh, 10TE. I think it's, it's, it's referred to as, and it's a 76 millimeter, uh, objective with a 1500 millimeter focal length, I believe, um, or is it 1200? I don't know. I should, I should check it. It's, it's quite long. It's, you know, got some pretty good aperture at 76 millimeter. And again, this one was made by Royal Astro Optics. So the, the lenses are quite good quality. It's a beautiful, beautiful telescope to use. Um, in fact, maybe the next time I go out in the backyard, instead of the, the telemeter, maybe I'll take out the, uh, the 76 millimeter Tasco. So anyway, Chris, that's my roundup of experiences with acros and which ones I, I still have. Okay. Very, very good. Very good. I'm just, uh, I meant to put a reference into our notes here. So I was just looking that up. I'll, I'll drop that in here in a second. Let's work through, uh, some of what Wade sent us <laughs> about some of the shortcomings and recommendations for acromat observing. Okay, so I kind of group these together as as best as possible. So one of the things, and and Shane, we're going to really lean on you for this because I feel like you've um, 
probably got more varied ex- experience in some ways than I have, although I, I have a little bit from star parties. Um, and I, I guess I should say, okay, I got that in the notes. Okay. So the first things he says are use low power CA chromatic aberration is less of a problem. The lower the power and more of a problem, the higher the power avoid bright objects like the moon and bright stars stick to DSOs, deep space objects, and fainter stars. Okay, so let's hear your comments on this one, Shane, before I jump in. Well, I think I'm going to defer to you mostly on this one, Chris, because <laughs> I like my belief with acromats is is to use longer focal lengths to overcome the false color. So all of my acromats are quite long um, and, and, you know, slow, I guess would be another way to phrase it. I really don't have a lot of experience using fast acromats um, and the experience that I do have, um, it's really only been on deep sky objects. I haven't looked at anything bright uh, with say a F5 or an F6 acro uh, just to see what it looks like. So over yeah. to you on this one. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's fair enough because that's where weight is coming from. But it, but in general, though, just like in general, when it comes to acromats and the ones that you've used, uh, what are they, what are they like on the on the planets? Because yours are that longer focal. Uh, oh, they're length. they're yeah, they're outstanding. Um, the only time I've ever noticed color is with I'm trying to think here. Certainly Venus. Um, I remember looking at that through my Zeiss telemeter. And there was quite a bit of yellowish color that I saw. Um, I have looked at the moon before with the telemeter and, you know, I, it's right up there with one of my most contrasty telescopes that I own. It just, it's fantastic. Um, I've looked at Jupiter, Saturn, and I can't say that I've detected any false color. Mars, as I mentioned earlier, no false color. Um, and then just doing a lot of double star observing, um, what I found super interesting about the Zeiss that I'll mention too, um, one, like one of the things I really enjoy about double stars is when there's color variation within the stars, but sometimes picking up that color can be challenging and sometimes using small aperture makes that even more challenging. So what I would do with all of my double star observations is I would record what I saw, you know, blue, orange, yellow, whatever the star color appeared to me. Um, but in all of those cases, I would go into sky safari to see if I could confirm the color that I saw. Mm -hmm. And I would say I'm probably about 98 to 99% accurate in IDing color through the acromat accurately. So, um, you know, I, I, and those colors can be a little bit debatable anyway, but yeah, yeah, understanding. So absolutely. So probably about as good as, as you're going to get perhaps. I think so. Yeah. And, and really the point of what I, or one more point that I'll add in all of the double star observing that I've been doing with the Zeiss telemeter, I've never had an issue with false color from a bright star, you know, ruining the view or distorting the view in any way. It's been quite nice. Now, I guess I should also add, I, I haven't been looking at like mag two or mag three stars. Uh, most of the stars are probably in that five to eight or nine range. So, mm-hmm. you know, a little, a little bit fainter than probably, you know, uh, what, what you would expect, uh, from a bright star. So, uh, like I said, Wade had, we talked back and forth. So I'm going to be a little bit, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know, poking the bear here a little bit, but the, the business of avoiding, uh, bright objects, um, I would say I'm really glad that when they were using those big old, uh, refractors like the Lick 36 inch and 
Yerkes, Yerkes 40 inch and the United States Naval Observatory 26 inch, which uh, those have made some amazing uh, discoveries uh, as has the, uh, what is it? It's like a 30 or 33 inch at Mudan and uh, the Paris Observatory and, and uh, you know, the 9.6 inch uh, Norpat refractor, um, you know, the, the nine inch at Brer Observatory, you know, and the list goes on and on of all these acromats out there that they used for um, planetary uh, discovery. I'm, I'm really glad that they looked at bright objects. That's, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so one thing, though, to keep in mind is that um, with those really big ones, like 36, 40, 26, they, they were using um, typically 400 to 600 power in those instruments and on really good nights, 750 to 1,000 magnification. Mm. Yeah, that's wild. So oddly, oddly enough, 400 magnification is low power in a 40 inch or maybe just getting into medium power. Cause that's just a 10 X per inch of aperture. Yeah. That's a good point. I guess everything is relative. <laughs> yeah. So like in my, in my four inch, that would equate to like uh 40 magnification, but uh, I'm going to say this is that one of the best views I've ever had of Jupiter. And this, this is what cracked my mind open on the acromats having used the ST 80 and look through um, a few apocromats by this point when I moved to Ontario, I, I had gone up to Starfest and on a couple occasions, actually, I spent uh, uh, several hours observing with Ron Ravenberg and he he uh, passed away uh, about 12 or so years ago, but uh, he had refurbished some old acromatic refractors. One of them was a four, I think it was like a four and a half inch Fecker. And I think it was operating, I'm going to say maybe like around F13. And if you have um, one of the older editions, I think it was the previous edition or maybe the edition even previous to that of the Backyard Astronomer's Guide, there was an image of this person uh, under dark with uh, a long focal length blue refractor and a laser pointer pointed at like Jupiter or something. Well, that was that was this instrument. And... Mm-hmm. And it just performed, but it was an acromat and not long enough really to be, be considered apochromatic, you know, like once you get so uh, far into these uh, ratios, like Wade was saying, you, uh, you can start to get into color free, but it, it wasn't, there was definitely uh, secondary color chromatic aberration there. And I, I've also had the chance to look through some 60 and 90 millimeter acromats, um, sort of in like that F9, F10 uh, ratio and and they gave excellent planetary views as well in particular i think my uh friend randall has uh an 80 millimeter which really is um an acromat and it's just a beautiful instrument he bought refurbished from stellar view and one of the other 90 millimeters uh maybe it was an 80 or a 90 or maybe both um these other ones i've looked through were also from stellar view when they we're selling some some acromats uh, several years ago, and and they were just excellent, excellent to look through. There's some other Antares instruments like the 105 millimeter f15, really really great instruments. And uh, you know, kind of going back, thinking about uh, Schiaparelli and Lowell, um, looking at Mars and Galileo, looking at uh, Jupiter through uh, through a very uh, chromatic singlet. Um, 
you know, there, there's lots that has been done uh, with these type of telescopes. So, you know, I think sometimes there, there's a, a debate on whether or not, you know, uh, just for historical purposes, even alone, but also for practical purposes, are, are they still uh, good? So I, I think, Shane, the thing in my mind anyway, that what it boils down to is that uh, the recommendation for the low power with these scopes stems from many of them, like we're like I was saying at the outset, many of, of the most popular models are these short focal ratio instruments. And they're well designed to hit really low powers and wide fields. Uh, and, and to be frank, that really is their forte. And um, I think what happens though is because of the way the instruments are marketed, that people pick them up like they pick up other instruments or, or purchase them like they pick up other instruments. And uh, they're going to use them as a generalist instrument. And so they're going to point it at everything as we often do. And for sure, when you do that with those instruments, you're going to see a lot of uh, this secondary color. And then as well, with these instruments, because they are entry level and, and the way that they're designed to meet a price point, um, sometimes the optical and mechanical quality uh, might not um, sort of be be where it's at when you're buying an apocrymat. It's kind of surprising what you can get for the dollar these days. But you know, if you take a three or four hundred dollar apocrymat and compare it to a three or four hundred dollar acromat, sure, you might be comparing a seventy-two or an eighty millimeter apocrymat to a five inch or or such uh, acromat. But just look at the focuser difference. Look at the everything that that's included and constructed with it. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, Shane. The cell in the acromats, they're all plastic cells. And when typically you're going to the apocromats, um, as far as I've seen anyway, typically those are uh, metal cells of one sort or another. I'm not sure if you've noticed that. With which, uh, like with more modern, cheaper acromats? Or? Yeah, the the modern less expensive acromats these fast ones are almost ubiquitously um you know plastic focusers or, or a lot of plastic parts in the focuser plastic lens cells and and you know yeah i don't yeah. have a ton of experience there um so I'll, I'll i'll go with whatever you're telling me on this one <laughs> and i think what happens is because these plastic lens cells are every single one i've seen Every single one that I've seen is shift with the lens cell over tightened and it's pinching the optics, mm -hmm. every single one. And, uh, you know, I've gone to like little mini star parties at clubs and had people look in my ST80 and go, well, mine doesn't work that way. And I just walk over, pull their shield off and, you know, I ask them first and then give the cell a, a you know, a, a, a turn and then turn it back just to snug it up and then eh, go ahead and take a look and then boom like suddenly the images are much better and what that what i'm saying here is you can do some really interesting and very easy things um to get beyond those low powers so with my st80 when i first buy these st80s um the 40x anything at 40x or above the stars are kind of smushed mm -hmm. uh, and you can do a quick google search to see how to loosen and reseat the lenses and uh, you can do some other work and get these models working pretty well. Uh, the two models that I bought during the pandemic, I have the one that I kept, which is a low low power wide field version. And then I have one that I 
that I thought the lenses were a little bit better. And I, and I gifted that to my nephews for their fun uh, and kept it in the one and a quarter inch format. And that one can do a hundred X ish, maybe 120 on a really, really good night. And then mine can do about 90. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I've been able to take them. And that's with like the 80 millimeter F5. And so uh, often it's not necessarily even the optics or any of the other parts. They, they tend to be decent quality. It's just how they're working together. And in fact, like when I use my ST80, I will go and tune the um, amount of pressure on that lens every night because like the temperature differences and everything um, really impact those scopes much, much more than any other telescope that I've ever used. Hmm. Sounds like... Uh... A, a little bit of fiddling then is required. It is. And you, but you can do great stuff. You can baffle them internally. Typically I rip them apart. And in the past I would use spray paint. And now I'm using, um, I got like some custom flocking material I bought from Edmund Scientific that I put inside to uh, baffle them. And uh, there's all kinds of uh, great, you can buy, I bought a new focuser for mine, a, like a solid steel focuser. Um, and sometimes what you'll find is that the optics aren't lined up with the focuser. And so there's things with that. Uh, and then as well, oftentimes the focusers that come with these instruments actually extend into the light path. Cause once you get to an F5 instrument, that light cone is really steep and it's super easy to have a draw tube that's too long. And you end up with an 80 millimeter that's operating more like, I don't know, like a 60 or 63 millimeter instrument that that is pretty common with these instruments as well. So if you kind of do a little bit of work, you can actually get them uh, to perform quite well. There you go. A path to success. Path to success. But I think this is like a huge part in why these instruments tend to have um, a bit of a bum reputation, because once you do all that, uh, and you see that the secondary color, yes, it's there. Yeah, it impacts the view, but uh, their their ability to do uh, deep sky and high power, and then even have enjoyable planetary views. Like once I had tuned that very first scope that I had before I moved, um, you know, I would set it up on Jupiter, run it at eighty or ninety power, and uh, I was looking at Jupiter one night. I was watching a shadow transit. These are subtle things to see in an eighty millimeter. And my cousin, who does the, the music for the show, he um, he just drove in the driveway that night, a beautiful December night in Nova Scotia. And he walks up, looks in and says, oh, there's two dots. And I had only noticed one. And so even to a casual observer, uh, the optics in these um, affordable instruments uh, can provide you with uh, really good views of the planets once you sort of take the time with them. Yeah, yeah. Um that's you know i think that's an important part here is um there's there's a lot of things you can do uh, to make an acromat perform a lot better or over, overcome some of the um you know inherent weaknesses within the design uh wade mentioned some filters earlier which i know a lot of people employ uh there's even um i think it's called a chroma core uh i don't know if they're made anymore but um there, this chroma core you could put on to acromats and it, mm -hmm. it would correct. And, and apparently they were outstanding in terms of yeah. correcting and also not taking away from the view. Uh, but they're about as rare as hen's teeth right now. I think yeah. so you yeah, have to try to find that on the, the used market. But I think like, I don't know if explore scientific or, or one of these, 
you know, other makers, I, I thought they have their own version of it, but maybe I'm mistaken. Just, yeah, there's been talk of them producing something else, um, but it, nothing has materialized. But uh, yeah, getting back to to the filters, maybe we will let the show run another five or six minutes, but um, use nebula filter and way, way to mention, use nebula filters, narrow band filters. Um, that way you don't need to focus all wavelengths of light together if you're not looking at one or two wavelengths. Uh, and then he mentions the uh, Herschel wedge uh, that comes with the continuum filter and and, and talks about uh, using fringe killers and the contrast booster. So kind of for me going in reverse order is when I'm looking at the planets, almost regardless of whether, well, I'm you know typically using my apocromats for looking at the planets, I use the contrast booster anyway. But from all reports is that it does in the acromats um, uh, eliminate uh, you know, like 90% of what you're going to have for this uh, chromatic aberration. And the contrast booster is is a filter that threads on. I don't know what they cost now. I think I paid like $70 for mine Canadian or something like that. I just got the one in the quarter. But uh, I think the fringe killer might be a little bit more expensive. And from my understanding, does does a pretty good job as, as well. But do you have any experience using the uh, Herschel Wedge or Continuum filters on the Acromat chain? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I've I've used or have I used the wedge? I don't know. I think I've used my wedge. The wedge is sort of a newer addition to my solar observing repertoire, and I think I've only used it on apocromats to be candid. So yeah, I I don't. I I will try it on mm. on one of the acromats maybe this coming summer. But um, yeah, I can't really comment on that. I think one of the things that people have found successful with that uh, some of the acromats, I think you have to experiment a bit, and and I certainly plan to do this, is using a prism diagonal has been shown to reduce the mm -hmm. secondary color as well for some instruments. Yeah, and I do make sure that I use a prism diagonal um, with my acromats. In fact, really pretty much with all of my apocromats too, because uh, for the most part, all of my telescopes are not fast. You know, I think most yeah. of the, most of my telescopes are like F 7.5 up to like F 16. So yeah, uh, for the most part, I'm always using a, a prism diagonal. So let's see. Um, some people use yellow long pass filters. Uh, Bader makes a good one, but they, they use other ones as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see. Wade goes on to say, stop down the aperture for a basic acromat is ideal to have a focal ratio of at least three times the aperture in interest uh, in inches and five X is better. This is called the chromatic ratio. Um, I have seen this expressed in a number of different ways. There's this, there's a Sidgwick formula. Mm -hmm. I think there's the Conradi, uh, formulas. There's all kinds of different formulas for getting, a a chromatic telescope or an achromatic telescope to give you nearly color-free uh, images. He goes on to say, for example, a four-inch F5 500 millimeter would have a chromatic ratio of only 1.25, uh, whereas if you stop it down to two inches, it now has an F10 and uh, basically would would give you near uh, perfect color correction. And he says that he does this all the time and it works uh, on the moon and during the day for terrestrial targets. So um, I, I've read a fair bit about these Conradi or uh, chromatic ratios. Um, I think for what you're doing, that sounds that sounds good, Wade, on the moon and some terrestrial targets. But uh, on the nighttime sky, you're giving up resolution in favor of color correction. And uh, you will see less versus uh, seeing, uh, you know, I guess you're seeing less, but it has less color versus seeing more detail 
and some color. So it depends on how much color there is. Uh, and I would think about mitigating uh, the color with filters um, first if if the color was uh, was obtrusive. Not sure what your thoughts are there on that one, Shane. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a, certainly a, a workable solution. Um, but again, that's also why I stick to long acromats just to kind of hit the ratio in the in the right spot so that the views are quite nice. So when it comes to acromats, um, I think it's also important to use them for their intended purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a, a long focal length, then planets should be good. And if it's fast uh, focal ratios like the ones that uh, Wade has, uh, then using them as as intended for the wide field. Um, but make sure that it's it's baffled and got the focuser working properly and be able to get up into those um, mid to low high power ranges. They, they should at least be able to do uh, their aperture in millimeters or maybe 1.5 times their aperture in millimeters versus uh, the 2x aperture in millimeters that an apocromat should be able to reach. And, and if you can hit those 1.5x in aperture in power, then um, that's going to handle the, the majority of any observing you'd ever do through that instrument anyway. Mm -hmm. Then you can uh, modify your observing. So th this is what I ended up doing. Uh, you know, I bought the scope. I used it for a while. It wasn't working amazing. I didn't know you could modify them. And what I ended up doing is just using the lowest power, like 32 millimeter fossil in the uh, 80 millimeter F5 and really fell in love with like looking at all of M31, North American Nebula, Veil Nebulas, IC1396, Helix, Double Cluster and Trumpler 2 in the same field, M8, M20, 21 in the same field, Small and Large Sagittary Star Clouds, Rolf of Perseid Group, Kemble's Cascade, <clears throat> list goes on and on. But uh, like I said, I, I think the, the the part of the bad rep here is that uh, people buying the inexpensive fast F5 versions and then using them under light polluted skies where they end up looking mostly at planets with them. I, I think that's where the disappointment uh, comes in, you know, and that's why people just, you, you post and, you know, I could post that today, maybe say a, a telescope that I bought and uh and then people would say well that that's a, you know that's just going to give you all the secondary color and if i wrote back so well i'm not going to look at the planets with it i'm going to look at all this other stuff of which there's you know almost this infinite list of wide field targets looked at one for the first time last night but uh you know i've got apocromats for looking at planets and as well i think that when it comes to big acromats you can uh, you can do pretty good to uh, get them working well or you can like, like Shane, you and I were talking, you can buy high-end acromats for a fraction of the cost. They're just somewhat rare. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and if you're if you're interested in getting, I think, a good performing acromat, um, there are some good modern ones. Like I think the uh, four-inch Skywatcher, um, I think it's like an F10 or something like that, gets really good reviews. Um, there's that uh, uh, F11 uh, four inch that uses ED glass that you can still find. I think Altair makes one or used to I think TS optics, <clears throat> excuse me, an APM possibly make it now. Um, and then there's always the vintage scopes, like pretty much all of those sixties and seventies scopes or fifties too, were all acromats. And if you find, uh, one made by Royal Astro optics, um, and there's a few other makers that are renowned for pretty good objectives, you're, you'll end up with a really nice telescope that performs really, really good. 
Yeah, I'm just looking really quick. Things like uh, Takahashi, Zeiss, um, Vixen. Vixen made tons of really good acromats. Some, sometimes they've played around with the design. Um, and uh, Orion Telescopes had some of those those for a while. I think even uh, TEC, Tech Instruments, had produced some acromats. Mm. TMB had produced some mm-hmm. acromats as well. So I think there there has been some really decent uh, acromats put out there if uh if you kind of want to explore those avenues uh and then go in vintage like clark um acromats and then uh, and then others as well yeah for sure lots out there so if you want to read more about optical design and theory so uh, this book has been reissued it turns out i i should have sold mine when the prices were high on the used market i think it was going for 500 dollars there for a while uh, it's called Telescope Eyepieces and Astrographs. Excuse me. Design Analysis and Performance of Modern Astronomical Optics by Gregory Hollock Smith, Roger Sergioli, Richard Berry. It's hardbound. It's about 600 pages. Uh, cost is, I think, $40 American. You can get it at shopatsky.com. Uh, yeah, by simply just looking at the uh, Sky and Telescope shop. You can find it there. Anything to add to this episode, Shane? No, no, that's it. Hopefully we've uh, opened up the world of acromats to a few people because, you know, you can you can get a really nice telescope in, in that space and probably not break the bank. Yeah, hopefully we did it fair justice and that we're not viewing things through rose-colored glasses or purple-colored glasses in this case. Enjoy the rainbow. Okay. Concluding message. Just a reminder for our Patreon calendar draw. All you need to do is be a Patreon supporter to be placed in our draw. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.